We're continuing in our series on the Holy Spirit. As you know, at the beginning of this year, we started to work our way through the doctrines of the Bible, the major doctrines of the Bible. And we're now in this series on who is the Holy Spirit. And we have been studying a lot about the Holy Spirit. And we wanted to know more about the Spirit's working in us and through us as we are filled with the Spirit or controlled by the Spirit. And so we went to that passage in Galatians chapter 5 that teaches us about the fruit of the Spirit. And we have been taking a week per each of those descriptions of the fruit of the Spirit. And today we come to the one of goodness. And we are saying then that those who are filled with the Spirit or controlled by the Spirit will manifest goodness. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. The goodness of God that is given to us, that is given to us, that is transferred to us because of Jesus. And then that goodness that fills us is also lived out through us and impacts and has a tremendous effect on those who are around us. We want to talk about the full picture of that today. As we come to our gathering, I would imagine that most, if not all of us who are here today, faced multiple tests to our commitment to goodness this week. How many of us were there? How many of you had a test that uh, you were really tested with your response, with your thoughts, with the words that you spoke, and hopefully everything was good, but maybe it wasn't, right? I'll have to admit to you, I don't know that I passed all those tests this week. Uh, I'm sure my wife could add some detail to that, but we'll just leave it there. Goodness, did we pass the test? Were we tested? Were we realizing that we had been tested? Something maybe that we saw tempted us like David, to have thoughts that were not morally excellent. Or maybe someone with whom we interacted caused a temptation to anger or revenge. Surely that didn't happen to any of us this week. Or perhaps our inclination to act for the good and support of those in need has been hindered by apathy that is all around us. Maybe that's how we were tempted and we held back from doing good works. The truth is, all of these, all of these tests to our commitment to goodness were ordained by God to actually grow us, not hinder us. Someone wrote along these lines and they said, God develops the fruit of the Spirit in your life by allowing you to experience circumstances in which you are tempted to express the exact opposite quality. And he goes on to say that character development always involves a choice and temptation provides that opportunity. Isn't that true? When we're faced with a temptation that wants to pull out of us the exact opposite quality that God wants to be seen through us by his spirit, we have a choice to make, don't we? Every single time. And God allows those times that 
push us to make a choice about his grace being in our hearts and being seen in our lives or the exact opposite of that being experienced. He gives us that so that we're forced to make a choice because he knows that's the only way we're going to grow in his grace. Maybe some of us came here this morning with a past that keeps us enslaved to things that are opposite of goodness, maybe bad habits that derail almost any chance that goodness has to emerge from us. I want all of us who are in that boat to remember something today. While we are products of our past, while our past shapes us and forms us and certainly has a powerful effect in us and sometimes over us, we don't have to be prisoners to it. You can walk in victory, even if you have a history of making bad choices, even if those bad choices have caused you to develop bad habits that are the exact opposite of the goodness that God wants to be seen through your life to others, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay enslaved to that. You don't have to be a prisoner of your past. Even though your past certainly has an effect on you, you don't have to be a prisoner to it. It's why we sang that song again that spoke of the power of the redeeming grace of God that because Jesus died on the cross to save sinners from their sin, they don't have to be bound by that sin anymore or be prisoners to that sin, but they can walk in newness of life and walk in victory no matter what has happened in their past. You don't have to be a prisoner to that. Jesus sets you free. And you can experience that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You can put your faith in Jesus and you can trust him for salvation from your sin. And at that moment, you are free from the penalty of sin. And then you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You can submit to that Holy Spirit and be filled with him and cooperate with him in your growth in grace. And you can develop goodness like we're going to talk about today and grow. And as you do that, you, you incrementally and daily become more and more free from the power of sin. That's what we're talking about today, that growth in grace. And then what about that day that we're all desiring when we're with God, we're perfected, sin no longer has any influence in us at all, and we're free from the very presence of sin in his presence. That's what we're all working toward. I don't know where you are in your journey if you've trusted Jesus for salvation and received that victory over the penalty of your sin. I don't know if you, you have done that and you're growing today in your journey, but no matter where you are, it all revolves around Jesus. And you don't have to be a prisoner of your past, no matter where you are in your journey. So the message today is one of hope and, and grace to you that we would embrace this goodness and live it out for the glory of God. No matter how we came into our gathering today, the truth that we will hear will necessitate us doing some work on ourselves. I hope that all of us go, oh, I need to work on something today. 
I hope that God speaks clearly and that we're honest enough with ourselves and with him that we see the weaknesses and then do something about it. There is work to be done in all of our lives. And sometimes that also involves helping others pursue goodness, doesn't it? We have people in our life that we can help and mentor and disciple and help them grow in grace too. We need to do that. Goodness involves that. This will include dealing with things that are definitely wrong because when you talk about goodness, you are making a distinction, aren't you? You're calling something good, which means that not everything is good and that there are some things that would qualify as being wrong or bad. That's not popular today, but it's necessary for growth. Helping others see and address the things that are wrong takes courage and it takes firmness, doesn't it? Someone wrote it this way in, in commenting on these types of things. They said, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. You have a phobia, right? Or you hate them. The second is that to love someone means that you agree with everything they believe or do. The writer goes on to say, both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to pursue goodness and be compassionate. You can stand for what is good and right. And that's what I want us to think about today on a very personal level, but also in a relational level because all of this has an impact and an effect outwardly as we allow God to transform us and renovate us from the inside out by his spirit and for his glory. So as we talk about goodness today, the first thing that we want to do is talk about the meaning of goodness. What exactly are we talking about? And what we would say to begin with is it certainly would be expressed through this terminology, that of moral excellence. Moral excellence. That which is moral as opposed to that which is immoral. And in order to get here, in order to actually understand and know what moral excellence is and what it looks like and how it can be found and implemented into our lives, you have to believe that morality exists on an absolute level. You have to believe that you can know what is moral. And we are living, as you know, in a culture that doesn't want to embrace moral absolutes. They want everyone to be able to figure out for themselves what morality is. Or they want someone's circumstances to be able to dictate what morality is. And all the while, God is saying to us, I've given it to you. It's right here. I've told you through revealing to you my own character and nature in my self-revelation what morality looks like. Here it is. And those who will take that and stand firmly on it and declare it to be absolute truth are those who understand what moral excellence is. You can't ever have moral excellence without establishing absolute truth. Morality comes from that, and we need to be pursuing that. Moral excellence. This terminology also in the Scriptures talks about uprightness of heart. And we're going to drive down on that in particular today because this is critical. 
you have to have the acceptance that there are moral absolutes and to know what that is to pursue moral excellence. But you have to let those things that you say you believe in your quest for moral excellence to do something to your heart. They have to captivate your heart. They have to transform your heart. We, we talk about growing in grace and being renovated by that grace from the inside out. That is critical because all of that, the acceptance of moral absolutes, the allowing that to lodge in one's heart and, and, and govern their desires and appetites and their actions, see, all of that then is going to come to our third idea, which is righteous behavior. You never get there without the first two. You have to buy into moral absolutes and the pursuit of moral excellence being a real thing that you can know. And then you have to allow it to change your heart, and then it can be lived out consistently for the glory of God. Now, I want to drive down a little further on this idea of uprightness of heart. When we see bad behavior in our own lives that we know is not consistent with the character and nature of God, or we see bad behavior, let's say, for example, in the lives of our children, okay, we've got to look, I think, deeper than the behavior to find the cure for it. How many of us when our children, by the way, how many of your children did bad things? Anybody want to admit that today? No, your kids weren't perfect like mine? Okay. We all did bad things, right? Our kids do bad things. And what was our natural inclination when they did those bad things? How do you handle that as a parent? Stop doing that, right? If if you value your own health and safety, stop doing that. Because I'm bringing correction, right? And and really, what is that, though? If, If our parenting with our children, when they did bad things that we saw outwardly, if our parenting only focuses on the behavior, aren't we missing something? Yes, we are. If, if in our own lives we do things that are considered bad behavior and not goodness like we're going to talk about today and all we focus is on changing our behavior and we don't ever work on changing our heart, what's going to happen? We're going right back there again, aren't we? We don't have a chance of any lasting change taking place in our lives. What does this demand of us with our children as we're rearing our children and they exhibit bad behavior? We should correct that bad behavior, but we should go deeper than that by asking the why questions. Why? What motivated you? Why did you do that? That uncovers the root. You see, what you see on the outside has roots, a lot of roots maybe, and you have to ask questions and be intuitive and, and be attentive to detail and really drive down so that those things can also be corrected in the heart of your child. The same thing works for you. You find yourself sinning and doing something that's less than morally excellent. Why did I do that? How did I get there? What drove me there? You begin to uncover the things that are in the very heart of an individual. Those are the things that need to be dealt with in order for righteous behavior to be seen and consistently lived out. If we are only behaviorists, we're going to get inconsistent change that doesn't last and a lot of frustration and maybe even confusion along the way. So let us focus on the heart 
not at the expense of the outside, but because that's where the outside is driven from. And we're going to look at some scriptures as we go along that will point that out. I want to talk to you about the standard of goodness. Where do we go when we want to know what goodness looks like? And where do we go for our example? We know it is God. We, as Christians, we understand and know this. And let me just lay a biblical foundation for this. God by nature is inherently good. That's who he is. Psalm 34 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. He's inherently good. That's who he is. Another passage that we often associate with Thanksgiving season is found in Psalm 100, right? Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for Yahweh is what? Good. And his love is eternal. His faithfulness endures through all generations. God is good, period. It goes further than that, though, because God is only capable of being and doing good. He is incapable of anything less. The reason is because he is God. He, he can't be tempted with evil, the scripture says, and he doesn't tempt any man. There's nothing out there that can even be attractive to him that is less than good. He's only capable of good. And that got started whenever we were given the creation narrative when he established it. He said God saw that all that he had made and it was very good. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. Creation could only be good because of who he is. He can only do and be good. Psalm 119 says, you are good and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. You are good and you only do good. You're incapable of anything else. And then, of course, we know that as a result, he only gives good gifts too. James 1.17, every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God because he can give nothing less. There's a great need for this goodness to be experienced in the world today, and I want to talk to you about that next, because of depravity. Every individual who has ever been born, the Scripture tells us in the book of Romans, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every individual was born with a sinful nature. Paul talks about it in the book of Romans in his great doctrinal treatise, and he gives us very clearly that the roots to our depravity are found in Adam, and that all who follow Adam have been born in this sin. So depravity runs deep in every human being who has ever been born. Even David testifies of it in Psalm 51. In sin my mother conceived me, and in sin was I born? He just comes right out and gives us that theology, even in the Old Testament there in Psalm 51. That means that everyone is in great need of God's goodness. And we can receive God's goodness. It's given to us in our hearts. That righteousness is transferred from Jesus to our account as we believe, we experience the effect of that, and that is the basis of our justification, whereby God declares us to be righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus. 
the goodness of Jesus, that moral excellence given to us in our bankrupt state. We were morally bankrupt, and that righteousness was given to us, was transferred to our account. It didn't belong to us, but it was given to us. And then we have the cure for our depravity. The goodness of God is the cure for our depravity. And I want to just drill down and talk to you about some of those verses that talk about this. These verses will not come up on the screen, but if you want to find your place in Isaiah 53, I want to read this to you. And I just want to talk to you a little bit about the need for this goodness because of the depravity of man. And I want you to think about where you are today in your life. Have you access the cure for your sin, the cure for your depravity by placing your faith, by believing in Jesus and confessing him as your savior. We're going to look at a passage in Romans 10 later that talks about this, but have you done that? Have you believed in Jesus to save you from your sins? You need that goodness of God because of the depravity that we're all born in. That unlocks and allows you access to the way toward goodness in your life. Without that, you cannot do anything good. Isaiah 53 says this, beginning in verse 1, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. This is all speaking of Jesus who is coming. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, the peace with God, first of all, because God's wrath was against our sin, and then the peace of God after we came into relationship with God, all of that was taken care of through Jesus, and he suffered punishment to purchase that peace. He was our vicarious atonement on the cross, and by his wounds we are healed. Now, I want to stop here. I I couldn't help myself in the first gathering. I don't think I can help myself now. By his wounds, we are healed. What is the context? I want to talk to you about an error today that's out there, and then we'll continue. But what is the context of this passage? Would you say it's spiritual, or would you say it's physical? Every word that is used previous to this is spiritual. It's talking about our sin problem our transgressions, our iniquities, and that he was punished because we were in sin. And then it says, by his wounds, we are healed. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for your sin. And he provided for, in that death, your healing from the sickness of sin. This passage is not teaching that Jesus died on the cross and purchased your healing from physical diseases. And yet there are a lot of people who will teach that and believe that today. This is not a guarantee that you're going to be healed from physical diseases if you believe in Jesus. Now, does he heal some? He does. 
But a lot of people suffer and die from disease, and it doesn't mean that they didn't have enough faith to be healed. So Jesus' death on the cross is spiritual. It conquers sin and the grave ultimately. Don't turn it into something that it has absolutely nothing to do with. It is spiritual, and every word here points us to that spiritual meaning in the text that our sickness is sin and that he heals us from that because he died on the cross. Avoid the heresy that says otherwise. Look at the next verse. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the what? All the physical diseases? No, the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth, and he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. We need the goodness of God because we are all depraved. We need that goodness and that righteousness from Jesus that saves us from sin. There is a great need. Ephesians 2 continues, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you had previously walked according to the ways of this world. You skip down to verse 3. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Desperate need of God's goodness and righteousness. Also in Ephesians chapter 4, we find the exact same concept. He says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thoughts. They're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. And he says, you didn't know the Messiah or learn this from the Messiah. You need to leave these things aside and as truly walk in the goodness of God. And of course, as a result, this is where we need to be living as believers. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. That is the path to knowing God's goodness, experiencing God's goodness, and doing in our lives the very goodness of God, seeing it manifested to others through the control of the Spirit. What is the foundation? Where does it all begin? We've stressed the need for it. We look to God to be our standard 
and we understand the concept, but where does it begin? I've already touched on this earlier, but it truly is the heart. I want to just say it this way. You can sow a thought, reap a deed. Sow a deed and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. It all begins in the heart, and that heart must be transformed by Jesus. It must be rescued from its sinfulness and its depravity. And that is accomplished through what we find in Romans 10. I said we would look at this passage, and here it is. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One who believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one who confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. That's where it all begins. Have you started the path toward goodness? Have you started that path by trusting Jesus? If you haven't, you can do that today. If you have, then let's look at what comes next. We need then to guard that heart that has been regenerated through the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice this in Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? The answer, by keeping your word. I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have treasured your word in my heart. One translation says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. That is how you guard your heart. God's self-revelation. Where you begin to know and understand what moral absolutes are because you begin to see who God is in his goodness, his character, his nature. It transforms your heart, which translates into righteous behavior. And as you live that goodness out, God's goodness is your standard. But that can all be hindered if you don't guard your heart. So we don't focus on behavior primarily. We want to go deeper than that and see what is in our hearts that is causing us to live the way we live. Proverbs chapter 4 reminds us, guard your heart above all else. Why? Because it is the source of your life. Everything that's going on in your life that you're doing and saying and thinking comes out of your heart. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And here is that emphasis on the heart. Guard your heart. Set up guardrails. Set up things in your life that are going to protect you and your desires and your appetites. Make sure that you are exalting Jesus to the place of sitting on the throne of your heart and nothing else, that you are truly finding satisfaction and fulfillment in him and nothing else. Guard your heart in this way. Now, it's interesting. Look at verse 24 and following. Don't let your mouth speak dishonestly, and don't let your lips talk deviously. Let your eyes look forward. Fix your gaze straight ahead. Carefully consider the path for your feet, and all your ways will be established. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Keep your feet away from evil. Every one of those things that is listed from verse 24 to the end of verse 27 has to do with what's happening on the outside. And it begins with establishing the importance of guarding your heart so that everything on the outside can be what it's supposed to be, so that you are living in light, living in the understanding of the goodness of God and passionately pursuing it with your heart and manifesting it in your life. 
It begins in the heart. That is the foundation of this, and we must be guarding our hearts or it will never translate into the language of everyday living. As we close, I want to talk to you about the manifestation of goodness, acting it out. And I want to say to you that good works must be done with the following. We learn this from Scripture, and we'll close with these reminders. First of all, we know we need to be doing good with endurance consistently. Look at Galatians 6, 9. So we must not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up consistently, day in, day out, no matter who we are dealing with, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, always doing good. Let us commit to endurance in this area. Let's also do it with a remembrance that other people are watching and will be affected by our pursuit of goodness. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus and his sermon In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. There are people in this world who still need Jesus, who are watching us. And our good works can be used by the Father to draw them to himself and thereby they would glorify him. But our good works can also shine light to those who have already believed and be an encouragement to those who are already in the household of faith. And it can even provoke them and spur them on to even more good works in their life, thereby glorifying God. So the way we live matters. The outside does matter. But we have to deal with the inside first. And then what is lived out in our life can bring God great glory. We also need to do these good works with a recognition that they are the purpose of our salvation. Look at this, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. That's why we were saved. That's why we were made, which God has prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. Now get this, we are not saved by works, by good works, but we are saved for good works And God wants us to live accordingly. We're not earning our way to heaven, but the fact that we put our faith in Jesus and his Holy Spirit lives in us and controls us means that our lives are going to be changed and we will pursue goodness. We also need to remember that anything less is sin. We shouldn't tolerate anything less than goodness in our life, moral excellency in every area. It is a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. And if God reveals things that are less than goodness in our life, we need to confess those things and our relationship will be restored to him. There's profound truth here that these good works are an assurance. They validate living faith. Yes, look at what James says about this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith and doesn't have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and keep warm and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. So we show that we've been saved by grace through faith. 
through the good works that we do in our life. We don't obtain salvation this way, but truly salvation brings about this kind of living. And it's a proof and an assurance that we are truly God's children. Finally, let us do our good works with a resolve to engage everyone in this way. Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Everyone should be seen as being worthy of our good works, whether we think they deserve it or not. Again, God is our standard here, and he loved us in our own moral bankruptcy. We didn't deserve his love, but he sent Jesus anyway as a testimony and a demonstration of how much he truly loved us. So it doesn't matter if someone deserves our goodness or not. We are still accountable to be and to do good. So let us remember these things this morning as we leave here, as we close our time together. If you need to begin the journey of goodness by accepting Jesus as your Savior and Lord, we invite you to that today. We're going to be available following the gathering. Seek one of us out as pastors, Pastor Stephen and myself. We would make the time to talk with you about Jesus. Please don't leave here without knowing him. And maybe as a believer, you have been challenged. There's something in your life less than good that God said, you need to work on this. Take note and take steps toward growth in grace in that area.